Well, I'm excited about today, not only because it is the first time that we're gathering this year, which is always exciting. Um, we want to set the tone the right way. But I'm also excited because we are starting a brand new series um, that uh, I, I've been working at for probably about a year now. Okay, uh, it was about this time last year. I read this, this really good book, really intriguing, and it had some of these concepts held within it. And so, really, since then, it's been kind of churning and stirring in my heart. And so, I've been kind of drilling away at this stuff. And so, any time that you have um, spent that much time and thought in something, it's always exciting when you get to like bring it to light, right? So today is is exciting for me. And so, the title of our series is "Words Matter." And the subtitle is Understanding Spiritual Language, okay? So Understanding Spiritual Language, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to have about a seven-week series here. It's going to carry us in basically through February. And uh, I think we're going to have a blast um, breaking this stuff down and maybe breaking down some, some walls. But actually, when I was meeting with our creative team a few weeks ago, they actually uh, requested a subtitle. Because if we just say words matter, then I think maybe what initially comes to mind is the power of the words that we speak, right? So speak positivity and speak life into people. Maybe that's what comes to mind. And although that's awesome, important, and and maybe we'll cover that down the line, what this series is about is truly digging in, being enlightened to what biblical language is really telling us, okay? That's what I'm passionate about, and that's what I want to do over these next few weeks. And I don't know if you've ever realized, but if you take a few steps back and you think about the topic of Scripture and what it provides us, what you'll quickly realize is that this is one of the biggest resources we have at our disposal to understanding God, um, to understanding who we are in response to that, and to understanding purpose and mission, like why we are here and what we are to be about. And so this is a very instrumental thing for us to understand, and so that's exactly what I want to give our time to. Now, when we talk about words, when we talk about language as it relates to the ancient East, the, the biblical world, so to speak, one of the thir- first things that you're going to realize as you study history is that words were extremely important in their culture. In fact, in many ways, words were a, a sacred thing to them. They mattered more than, than you and I can really imagine in our culture and in our context. And we see this in many ways throughout the biblical narrative. One of the ways we see this is in the covenants that they would make with one another. We see this with God and Abraham. We see it with Isaac and Jacob. Now today, if we are to make a covenant or a contract, then we're going to get paper. We're going to you know, sign it with our signature. We're going to put a date. Maybe we'll have to take extra steps just to show, hey, we're committed to this, right? We're, we're in. For them, all it took was a verbal commitment. Once I say it, it's done. It's over. It's written in stone. You can count on it. That's how important words were to them. We see this in their name. We've talked about this before, but their names were everything to them. That's who they were. That was their identity. And in fact, uh, you've seen throughout Scripture that some of their names change throughout their journey because of some transformation that's happened in their life. That's how valuable these words were to them. So first off, we have to understand that it's important to see the value of their words, but it's also important to understand and to see the content of their words, right? If we're actually going to understand what they're talking about, we have to understand the content. 
content. And for the most part, I don't know if you've realized, but the Bible doesn't really provide or, or give us specific definitions on the words or the concepts that it's laying before us, right? It's not a textbook, so it's not going to do that. And so what we're left with is, is figuring this out, right? Based off of timing and, and language and context. And so oftentimes what will happen is we will read right past something and not really understand what it said, right? Even if we think we understand, we don't really understand because we're applying some sort of assumed definition or understanding that the biblical writer may not have intended. And so the truth is, when we talk about first century language or first century context, it takes a lot of work for us to really understand what they're saying, what they're meaning, and what they are communicating. Let me give you a quick example, and I think this will kind of set the tone for the entire series, but a word that we see often in Scripture, and it's a word that you and I would use um, in our modern-day lexicon, is the word fear, all right? That, that's used many times throughout the Bible. You can probably even think of some scriptures in your head that have this concept within it. But there's an interesting context where this word is used throughout scripture, and it tells us to fear God, right? In fact, nearly a hundred times, it says some variation of that, either fear God or have the fear of the Lord within you. Now today, if you were to hear that for the very first time, your initial translation of that would be, I'm afraid of God. I need to be afraid of God, right? That's naturally how we're going to think. And of course, you can imagine what that would lead us to in response, right? If you're afraid of something, you're gonna avoid it. You're gonna hide from it. You might even run from it, right? That's what you would do. But of course, that's not what the biblical writers are trying to tell us because fear to them was this really deep concept of reverence and respect and awe and wonder. It was this really special word to them. Um, you can almost liken it to standing atop the, the Grand Canyon and just looking out at this unbelievable thing that you're seeing. Like deep within you would be this reverence and, and this awe and wonder, like your, your stomach is in your throat and your senses are trying to comprehend what you're looking at, right? In many ways, that's the sense of fear that the biblical writers were intending. And we even see this in scripture when many people encounter God, right? Immediately they bow down to the ground or they fall to their faces, this reverence, this awe and wonder for who he is and what they're experiencing. And so you can see with just one example, with just one concept, how important it is to properly understand spiritual language and how dangerous it can be if we don't, right? It can impact the way that, that we understand God. It can impact our pursuit of him, our relationship with him. And so we very much need to dig into this. So this is how this series is going to go. Okay, let me set the expectation. We're going to take this approach, what we just did with the word fear, we're going to do each message, we're going to have one word, one concept that we're going to dig into, we're going to unpack it, and we're going to try to see if we can enlighten ourselves on what scripture is really telling us about that concept. We'll compare um, the ancient understanding to the modern day understanding, we'll try to bridge the gap and just see if we can grow and mature through this. And uh, one of the, I think, unique aspects of this series is going to be I'm expecting there will be quite a bit of variation in the lengths of these messages, just to set the expectation, because I think some of these words are going to be a bit deeper, 
So we're going to have to spend our time really diving in and getting to a bunch of stuff. Some of these words, I think, are going to be quick hitters. So maybe just, you know, 15 minutes and, and we'll cover it. And then I'll leave it with you guys to, to take it on from there. So that's a little bit different from our typical series, but I'm anticipating that is what it's going to look like. Okay, so all of that on the table, we've laid out a foundation. Hopefully you generally understand um, what we're going to be talking about, why we're going to be talking about it. And so um, let's go ahead and dig into to our first word, our first concept of our series. So if you're a note taker, I can see some of you guys, get your notes ready. If you're not, get your minds, your hearts ready, whatever it takes, because we are going to dig in. The first concept, the first word that we want to talk about in our Words Matter series is the word, the concept, love. All right? The word, the concept of love. Now, as you can imagine, this is a a pretty big concept, right? I think we generally understand that it's pretty important. And of course, if you read through scripture, you will see this word many times and used in some pretty vital ways, right? So I think it's important that we understand what exactly is being said. However, I think maybe when, when I said the word love or revealed that that's the first concept that we're gonna talk about, I think maybe for some of you, I don't know, maybe you were initially disappointed by that. And I say that because maybe you were thinking, man, I was hoping for something bigger, you know, something loftier, something that I don't already have a grasp of. But the truth is, when we talk about love, loving God, loving others, as we discuss the great commandment, I don't think we often know what we're truly talking about. I, I really don't. I don't think we understand the implications. I certainly don't think we understand the full scope of what the biblical writers are saying, or more importantly, what Jesus is saying. And in fact, while this is a common word and concept for us, and again, we recognize its significance, if I asked you to sit down and define it, I think you would be surprised at maybe how long that would take you. I think you would kind of like stumble along. Yeah, oh yeah, what does love mean? Like, what does this look like? And so what I want to do today is I, I want to do that. I want to put some words to it, like actually begin to wrap our hearts and our, our heads around what this means and how we can apply it to our daily lives. And so let's start by doing this. And again, this is something that we're going to do consistently throughout this series. But let's start by discussing some of the differences that we see between this word today how, how we understand it, how we use it, how we apply it, compared to the ancient biblical world and how they would have done the same thing. Okay, I think this will very much help our understanding. And one of the first things as I began to think about the concept of love today, and we're gonna talk about this a lot, but what's interesting to me is we have begun to treat this as almost like a really mysterious type of concept. Like we will ask questions like, so do you think you love her? Do you think you love him? Do you think that it's true love, right? Those are common questions that we ask. And I don't think we realize, but when you take a few steps back, we're treating it as if it's like this mist in the air that you have to try to grab onto. Like it's, it's lofty, it's ethereal, it's almost elusive in the way that we treat the concept. Meanwhile, in the ancient biblical world, this looked very differently to them. Okay, love was not some mysterious thing to them. It wasn't mystical. It wasn't floating in the air. Love was real. And what I mean by that is it had substance. It was, it was actually quite a simple concept for them and how they lived in it and how they applied it. And so let's talk about this for a few seconds, see if we can't dig in and maybe learn something new today. 
Now, as we often mention, uh, when we talk about the Bible, the Bible was originally written in two different languages, okay? Old Testament was written in Hebrew. New Testament was written in Greek. So that means every translation, every iteration that we have today comes from those two root languages. Very important to understand as we dig in because here's the catch with this. The Hebrew and Greek languages were far more descriptive than our English language is today. Okay? They were very detailed. They were very thorough. And so what you will often notice is that for every one English word, there could be upwards of three to five Greek or Hebrew words to describe that same concept. Okay? So, so let me give you an example so you can see how this works in action. Okay. A, a common spiritual concept for us, we see it in scripture, is worship. We talked about this before, and even when I said the word worship, you probably had some sort of image or description that, that came to your mind, right? So it's, it's pretty familiar to us. But listen, in the Greek, there could be upwards of six different words to describe or represent this idea of worship. One could mean to, to bow or to lower oneself. Um, one could mean sacrifices. One could mean service. But typically all of these today in our English language would be translated as worship. So here's the difficulty with that for us today. When we read the translated word worship, we can't necessarily just assume we know what that means at face value, right? Again, many times we read right past it. We don't even understand what the writer is intending. For instance... When Jesus says the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, that is a completely different Greek word than when Paul says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Those are two completely different Greek words. Now, they may very well be pointing to a bigger, larger concept that we call worship, but it's vital that we understand the distinctions and the different contexts, okay? Now, likewise, when it comes to the concept of love, listen to this. There could be upwards of eight different Greek words that point to this big, large idea. Eight different words. So in English, we may simply say love, but, but in the Greek, they may have said agape or philia or eros or ludus or storge. They could have used any of those, which allowed them to be much more descriptive in what they were trying to communicate, right? In reality, we, we should probably have like three or four different English words to even begin to capture this idea of love. And I say three or four because while there could be upwards of eight different Greek words that point to love, there are a, a, a few concepts in particular that always lay out its foundation. In other words, they had words for love that pointed specifically to romantic love. Um, they had another one for friendship love. They had another one for family love. Like they had those distinctions. However, at the heart of all of these were a few foundational concepts that we need to be aware of, okay? And interestingly enough, these same foundations were also held in the Hebrew language as well. There's a ton of consistency between the two. And so that's very helpful as we read through scripture. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna lay out these concepts for you, these different aspects of love and how they would have understood it. And I want you not only to, to comprehend what we're talking about, but I want you to personalize this. 
I want you to think about the love relationships in your life. I want you to maybe do some self-reflection. How am I doing with these different aspects and angle of this word, okay? So let's go ahead and begin. The, The first aspect of love that we very much see in both the Greek and the Hebrew languages would have been an aspect of passion, all right, an aspect of passion. And, and this was always pointing to just this deep desire and affection for somebody else. And uh, as you can imagine, typically, almost exclusively, this would be used in a romantic setting or in a romantic relationship, right? In fact, our idea today of like falling madly in love, that would be held within this idea of passionate love. Now, while it is almost exclusively romantic, it could at times go outside of that, okay? It pointed to like excitement, like I can't get enough of this person. So at times it could go outside of that, but typically you will see this in a romantic setting. Now, a quick side note, just because I thought this was interesting as we look at the different cultures in play here, but um, the specific Greek word for passionate love is never used in the New Testament, Okay, there were ideas that were similar, but the specific word was never used, which might surprise you a little bit because you're like, I think we should have passion in our relationship with God, right? But here's the reason why. As we look at the early centuries into the first century context, the idea of passionate love was not really an idea that they looked at all that fondly. Like today for us, passionate love, that's everything, right? I'm in love with you. I'm all in. That's everything. That's the core of it. Back then, it was very, very different because they looked at this type of passionate love as almost a loss of self-control. Like, like you're uncontrollable. You're almost overwhelmed to the extent that you can't control yourself. And so they didn't look at that as all that great a thing. Now, again, that's just a side note. It's just showing the differences between the culture, but I think it's, it's helpful nonetheless. So we have passion. That's, that's number one. Number two is playfulness, all right? Playfulness. This was an aspect of love that was very clear to them. Just this light, almost childlike type of love that you would have with another person. And this, of course, could be romantic, could be platonic. It could go either way. It's, it's you know, having fun with your friends and laughing and having good banter back and forth, right? That's what this would be pointing to. Um, in, a, in a romantic setting, it would be just, you know, flirting or, or dancing, or it's like that, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you, it's like that type of light, romantic type of fun. That's, that's what this would represent. Now, while that seems like really light and amusing, this was actually very valuable to the Greek people. They, they took this very seriously in implementing this in each of their love relationships. So that's something to note. So passion, playfulness. Here's a third one, and this is a, a big one, especially for our context, and that is benevolence. Benevolence was a huge part of loving somebody else. It's, it's selfless love, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be universally kind and open to everybody around me. That's what this would point to. And in fact, um, when, they, when they would talk about benevolent love, they would typically have two ideas in mind. Number one, I'm gonna put you first, okay? You go ahead of me, you go before me, you're the priority. That's number one. The second thing would be, you don't have to earn this. You, you don't have to do anything to, to get this from me. I am freely giving this out. That's the type of benevolent love that they would have in mind. So when Jesus says to care for the needy, this is the type of love he's talking about. Or when he says there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for his friend, this is the type of love that he is talking about. And in fact, almost every time 
Jesus uses the word love, it's with this specific context in mind. Just this universal, I love everybody. I'm gonna give to everybody. I'm open-handed with all that I am. And so that's certainly something we should take seriously, okay? However, the fourth and the final thing was always, both in Greek and Hebrew, was always the foundation. This was always the fundamental aspect of love to them, and that is the aspect of commitment, the aspect of commitment. This is unconditional love. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here forever. You can rely upon me, right? It it elicits this trust and this safety and this comfort and this respect, right? It also had the idea of compromise. Like I know there's gonna be some give and take if we're really gonna be in this for the long haul. Commitment to them was the foundation of love. That's what it meant to them. So, So these are really the four key aspects that we see around this concept as we look to the biblical days and understanding. So this is how they would have tried to put words to what this means and how it applies to their lives. Now, if we can just take a few steps back and kind of let's take that, that big idea and, and let's apply it to our culture, see, see how this ultimately plays itself out. I think we're gonna see a couple of, of different things. Number one, and I already alluded to this, but without a doubt, you're gonna see that we elevate, we, we even glorify the passion and the playful aspects of love. Right? In fact, if you look at the new dating norms of how we get to know one another, or if you've watched any chick flick ever made, right? it's very much about the passion and the playfulness. And that has absolutely played a huge role in our understanding and our application of the marriage relationship. Okay, a huge role. If you think about the, the normal accepted process of romantic love, think about this for a second. In our culture, number one, it's starting with passion and, and playfulness, right? Some combination of those two things. So there's gonna be attraction, there's gonna be desire that pulls us in, right? And then we're gonna go on some dates, we're gonna have some fun, we're gonna get some good banter back and forth. And then we'll ask questions like, do we have chemistry? Are are, are we vibing with one another? Like those are the things that we're curious about. Now, if the answer is yes, then we get to the next step, which is what I would call semi-commitment, all right? It's not full commitment, not true commitment, but it's enough to run some trial and error on the relationship, right? Like, is this gonna work? Can I see this in my future? Are we compatible, right? Those are the things that we are gonna wonder to ourselves. And if we get past that, then we can talk about true commitment, right? We can talk about maybe an engagement. We can talk about maybe getting married, right? That's typically how it works. And then once we're committed, once we are in, then comes the learning around benevolence and selflessness and compromise. Like for most of us, we we didn't really know what selfless love looked like until after we got married, right? It was a a learning process for us. And in fact, if you've wondered why so many marriages get started off in a rocky way, this is why because it takes some time to chip away at our selfish habits and our personal expectations, right? It takes some time to learn these things together. So so this is the typical process in our culture from start to, to end, so to speak. That is how we would see it. Now, if we compare that to the ancient Greek world, it's completely different, okay? In fact, in many ways, it's, it's almost tipped upside down. It's very, very interesting. Now, if you know your history, you know that back in these days, what the, the primary practice was, was arranged marriages, right? Now, that's something we know generally about, and frankly, we look at it in a very negative way, um, but, but here's high level how this would work. First off, the, the two families would come together and they would kind of get to know one another. They would discuss the two prospects at hand. And especially back in, in this day, mainly the patriarchs, 
groups would come together. They would determine compatibility. You know, if this is a good fit, they were the adults in the room, so to speak, right? So they're gonna determine if this will ultimately work in a positive way. And if so, they'll bring the two together and then they will marry them and prepare to send them off on their own journey, okay? So what's interesting is back in these days, even with romantic love, it started with commitment. Number one, before you do anything else, before you take another step, you are committed to one another. That's where they would start. Now, after the commitment, then you can move on to the next pieces, right? Passion and playfulness and even benevolence. They often had the same problem we do in our culture today where they were kind of learning that on the fly, but they would test these things. They would work on these things. They would cultivate these things in their relationships. So it's interesting. In our culture, we test the commitment And in their culture, they tested everything else. So so it's very interesting to see the different cultures and therefore the different understandings of this important concept. Now, here's the thing. I'm not proposing that one of these processes is better than the other. I think you can poke plenty of holes into both of them, right? Here's what I am saying. I find it very interesting that in the biblical world that we read about, and therefore the context in which scripture is written, this idea of love always started with commitment. It always started there. The other aspects, they were, they were important, they were valuable, they were sought after, but it started first and foremost with covenant. I am committed to you. That's where it would begin. Now, I wanna repeat something because I don't want you to, to just overlook this. While commitment was first, I'm gonna repeat, all of these foundational aspects of love were important. And I don't want you to lose sight of that because so often um, we look at these things in a very binary way and we lose the nuance that's in play. Love is a complex thing and balance is key. So passion and playfulness and benevolence, all of these were valued that they were strived for, right? And in fact, I'll add another thing. All of these things were cultivated in their relationships. And what do I mean when I say that? I mean, none of these concepts were elusive or abstract to the Greek people. All of them were tangible concepts that could be impacted by choice and by action. In other words, they could be worked on. They were things that that could be grown and nurtured if done properly. This is how they would see a love relationship. Now, here's the thing, and I wanna slow down for a second, and I just wanna say this. Um, if, If you have ever experienced heartbreak, Um, If you've ever been a part of a a really rough relationship, if you've ever been divorced, listen to me. Um, This next part, I'm not taking shots at anybody. I'm not being judgmental. That is not my point at all. But I do think we need to learn some of these things as it relates to maybe where we're getting it wrong in our culture today, okay? And so one of the things that I've noticed is in our day and age, um, maybe you have heard somebody say before in their relationship, you know, things just aren't the way they used to be. It's just not the same. We used to go out and have fun. You know, the intimacy was great. The passion was strong. Things were great. But over time, you know, things just aren't the same. They, they have changed. Now, here's the thing. That's true. That, that is 100% accurate. Those things may have changed. But here's what's vital for you to understand. They haven't changed because mystical floating in the air love has magically left your heart or left your home. That's not what has happened. They've changed because you changed them. You didn't cultivate passion, and so it changed. You didn't implement playfulness, and so it changed. You didn't prioritize commitment, and so it changed. That's what has happened. This is true of every relationship that we have in life. Every one of these aspects of love is a decision. They are a practice that we are either faithful to or we are not. This is how love 
ultimately works. Let me, let me maybe explain it this way and we'll continue to, to get into our culture. In our culture today, love has become all about feelings, right? That, that is key. That is what everything is about. So how does this make me feel? What, what, what emotions am I experiencing with this person or in this given moment, right? That's always what we seem to be curious about. Now, here's the thing. Again, nuance in play, feelings matter. That, that stuff is important. We can't act like, you know, this huge piece of how God has made us doesn't matter. It matters. But here's the key. What is ultimately leading the charge? That's the key. What, what is steering the boat, so to speak? And this is, again, the biggest difference between modern-day love and historic ancient love. We know this biblically because God commands us to love. I don't know if you ever thought of it that way. That's what the great commandment is. He commands us to love him and to love one another. Now, you can't command a feeling. You can't command an emotion. Hey, you feel this way about me. You can't do that, certainly not effectively. And so what is God saying? What is he doing when he takes this approach? What he's doing is he's, he's commanding a commitment. He's commanding faithfulness in your relationship with him. While you can't command a feeling, you can command a decision. While you can't command an emotion, you can command habits that lead to emotions. And this is what he is talking about when he takes this approach with us. Here's another way to look at it. When it comes to the idea of love in our culture, or even just the idea of like caring about another person, we will often end up talking about authenticity, right? We'll ask ourselves questions like, is this really genuine? Is this sincere? Is, is this real? Like we wanna determine authenticity before we take another step. Here's the big problem with that. Just like with love, authenticity is not some concept that's floating in the air for us to, to randomly discover or to receive. That's, that's not how this works. I'm gonna use an analogy that might get me in trouble, but I'm gonna do it anyways because I think it is true, okay? When I first met my wife, the truth is I didn't authentically love her. Silence, I like it. <laughs> the truth is, is I, I, I didn't feel that way. It wasn't like I was sitting in the room and all of a sudden I just got this overwhelming sense. I think I authentically love this girl. I think I authentically care about this girl. That's not how it worked. Here's how it worked. I committed to her. I created habits and practices to support that. And then guess what? I cultivated authentic love for my wife. I cultivated genuine feelings for my wife. That's what happened. Now, it's funny to me how in our world today, we don't like that idea. We don't, we don't like that picture. We don't like the simplicity of it. We don't like the groundedness of it. We like abstract and, and ethereal. Like for some reason, we love the idea that life is being led by these imaginary floating concepts that we have to chase after or, or wait to discover. And so if it feels right, then I'm in, right? Or, or if the emotions are right, then I'll do it. Now, again, it's not that those things don't matter or that they're worthless. The problem is if we allow that to lead the charge, oftentimes we will be left aimless and without direction. And if we just understood the power of choice and habit, like if we just understood I can plant my feet in the ground and I can commit and I can be faithful to this person, then we would be much better off. See, here's the truth of the matter. If Jesus says to love others, choose to do it and put it into practice. If Jesus says to forgive others, choose to do it and put it into practice. If he says to seek first the kingdom of God, choose to do it and every day of your life, put it into practice. You don't have to wait until it feels right or authentic. No, you can cultivate that through your decisions and through your actions. That's how it works. Now, here's the cool thing about it. 
once you commit, once you make that decision, then, then those beautiful feelings and emotions are what bring the goods to the table, right? Like once I've chosen in my head, my heart, that I love someone, then all of a sudden new levels of joy and, and excitement and sadness and anger and, and passion, like all of those things follow suit. Again, this is probably a, a bad analogy that I'll get myself in trouble for. But here's the thing. If I was in a situation where before I ever knew my wife, I had never met her before, and, and I happened to walk by and somebody was being rude to her, somebody was disrespecting her in some sort of way, the truth is, is you know, maybe I would step in and try to like split it apart or maybe I would show compassion or maybe I would just walk right by, right? Like those are the options probably I would have taken. But here's the thing, if that would have happened after I came to know my wife and after I committed to her, I guarantee you it'd be different. There'd be some emotions involved. There'd be some feelings involved. See, my commitment cultivated my emotions, not the other way around, okay? This is how... We need to understand it. Now, we've laid that out. We get it. We understand it. We've hit it from every angle possible. Here's the question. Why is that important? Why, why is that significant, especially within the context that we are in today? And I think the first reason is, is really simple, if it's not already clear. I truly believe all of our love relationships would be so much better off if we understood and applied this. I really do. Rather than like chasing the feelings or riding the emotions, if we started with commitment, and we truly dedicated ourselves to the practices that support it, we would be so much better at love. We, we would. Every situation, every group, every context, we would be so much more effective in how we love, how we love our spouses, how we love our friends, how we love our community. We would be so much better at this. And that's actually what leads to what is really the, the real reason this is important, and that is, listen closely, I truly believe that the only way we are ever going to love like Christ is if we understand and apply this. That's the bottom line. Whether we're talking about family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, strangers, the only way we will love like him is if we deeply understand these principles and apply them every day of our lives. That's the truth. Because here's the thing, guys. There's gonna be a lot of times, maybe most of the time, if we're being real honest, that we don't feel like loving others. Can we just be honest? Like whether it's our first encounter or whether we've known them forever, every day in every context, it's hard to feel like loving people. Like it's, that's just the way that it is. But here's the thing. Here's what we can do. Every day we can commit to loving them. And every day we can put practices in place to cultivate that, whether we feel like it or not. Every day we can give them our time. Every day we can give them our support. Every day we can give them our compassion. Every day we can give them our resources. Every day we can do those things. And before you know it, authentic love comes rushing to the surface. See, the truth is, if, if we're gonna love all people, which is one of our values, if we're gonna change the community by loving on them, the question isn't, do we feel like it or not? The question isn't, are we in the mood for it or not? The question is, are we committed to loving them or not? Are we gonna be faithful in loving them or not every day of our lives? And the answer to those questions will determine our effectiveness. The answer will determine just what God does in and through and around us. That's why this is important. That's why we need to ponder it. That's why we need to consider it. That's why we need to apply it. And so before I end today, I just wanna, Slow things down just for a second. Just slow things down. We've talked about a lot today. I've, I've moved pretty quickly. And here's the thing. 
Love is a huge, huge concept, right? We probably already understood that. Maybe we understand that a little bit more today. And so it makes sense that we would bounce around. We would hit it from different angles, different contexts. But listen to me closely. There's one thing we cannot skip over if we're gonna have a discussion on love. And that is our love for God. I've mentioned several times the great commandment. That's what it is. He commands us to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. And so here's the thing. I'm not gonna rehash what we've already discussed. I don't feel the need to repeat the principles and the foundations of this. Here's what I simply wanna ask you. Have you truly committed to loving God? Think about it. Have you truly committed? Have you truly said, come what may, good, bad, indifferent, whatever's going on in my life, however busy or not busy I think I am, I'm committed to loving you, God. I'm in. I'm not going anywhere. Every day I'll wake up and choose to love you. Every day I'll wake up and choose to serve you. Maybe for some of you, you've been waiting kind of for that perfect timing been waiting for that perfect feeling to just strike you so that you can jump in and begin your relationship with God. Let me just encourage you. Don't wait. Don't, don't chase it like it's floating in the air. Right here, right now, commit. I'm committed to loving him. See, what I find so interesting about this is over the, the course of church history, we have a way of turning this into like a process flow. Hey, when, when it comes to you and God, you gotta do this and you gotta do that. And then, you know, step one and step four and put all the puzzle pieces together. And we just, we strip the relationship part right out of it. This is just like any relationship in your life, which means today you can commit. Today, you can start putting practices in place to support that begin a journey. What you're going to notice is a year from now, you're, you're going to know him better than you ever thought you could. And then a, a year after that, you're going to realize he's more amazing than you ever thought imaginable. And then a year after that, you're going to see as he uses you to change people's life around you. That's what's going to happen. That's how this works. And through that journey, guess what? You'll experience the passion. You'll experience the joy and the fun and, and the playfulness. You'll watch as you just open your arms to everybody around you. You'll see every aspect of love on display as he works through you. But it starts with commitment. It's not lofty. It's not ethereal. It's not elusive. It's a decision. It's a commitment. Will I love him? Will I serve him? So I'm gonna encourage you into that this morning. Even if you've been around here forever. You've been to a million different church services. Remind him right here, right now, I'm committed to you. I'm not going anywhere. I'll never serve anybody else, anything else. I'm here. Can we just do that? Can you just close your eyes right now, not worried about anything else, anybody else? Whether it's your first time declaring this or you've done it a million times before, 
all of these people, I will freely say, I'm committed to you. I'm committed to loving you. I'm committed to serving you. I love you so much. And those aren't just words that come out of my mouth. I don't know what I'm saying. I love you. I love you. Lord, may you hear the hearts of your people right now. May you soften anybody that needs to be softened. Please call anybody that needs to be called right now, God, in this place. Lord, I'm in it. Not going anywhere. I know that your arms are open. I know that you're ready. 